There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly ebay gets it so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch stitch sole and logo is checked by experts with ebay authenticity guarantee you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach ensure your next purchase is the real deal visit ebay.com for terms You have found Forum, Nature Biotechnologies podcast, where we speak with leading researchers in the field about their area of research, uh, recent papers, either in our pages or elsewhere, or just general topics of interest. And today, episode 12, we are going to talk about delivery, drug delivery. And this discussion was run by Marcus Elsner, a senior editor at Nature Biotech. And I think the first thing that we want to talk about is why this topic, why are we talking about drug delivery now? Yeah, I think... The, the reason, or maybe just the opportunity, is that for the first time, those, those modern drug delivery technologies have been applied in really, on a really massive scale uh, with the development of both the Moderna and the BioNTech-Pfizer uh, COVID vaccine. So there are other nanoparticle drugs um, in the clinic, but just on a, on a totally different scale. Yeah, so this kind of gave us... Uh, an opportunity to talk about drug delivery um, in in a more general sense, because while vaccines are great, if we really need them, um, it's not the only thing that you can do with uh, macromolecular drugs, so be it mRNAs, uh, DNA, or proteins. So over the years, we've developed um, technologies to interfere with basically every aspect of cellular physiology, uh, starting from engineering our genome with CRISPR or precursor technologies. Uh, we can interfere with cellular mRNAs. We can deliver uh, mRNAs to, uh, to make cells produce the proteins that we wanted to produce. To produce. Uh, we can deliver protein constructs to uh, interfere with, uh, with proteins that the cell uh, is not supposed to make. Uh, so we do have all those technologies. And once we have understood uh, what goes wrong uh, in a certain disease, we quite often know how to fix it in principle. And as long as we have the cells in a dish, uh, that usually works fine. The problem starts when we have to get all those fancy drugs that we've developed inside the body and inside the cells of uh, of a living organism. And so this is where modern drug uh, delivery technologies come in. Over the years, we have developed approaches, and we thought it's uh, it would be good to check in to see what we can do, what we cannot do, what 
uh, what technologies are used and what the future might bring. And so who, who did you get to talk with today? Yeah, I think we have two great guests. Um, so uh, one is uh, Katie Whitehead from the Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Uh, and she's really one of the up and coming stars in the field, uh, doing very creative work. And the other is uh, Bob Langer uh, from the MIT in Boston. And he's uh, probably uh, the godfather of the drug delivery field. Uh, uh, many of the concepts and ideas that that we are using have been developed by by his lab. And um, he's also been on the forefront of commercializing uh, the technologies that he has developed. For example, he is a co-founder of uh, Moderna, the, the maker of the COVID vaccine. And just dozens of other other companies over the years. He's been, as you said, for decades now, he's been spinning companies out of his lab. He's also one of the most cited scientists ever, uh, which I find quite amazing. Isn't it? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, and these two, these two people know each other, don't they? Yeah, I didn't know that before I invited them, actually. But um, so Katie was a postdoc in uh, in uh, Bob Langer's lab. Okay, I think that's um, that's all we need. So here it is, episode twelve of Forum. And so, what we're going uh, what we are going to talk about today, I guess, is how we get all of those fantastic macromolecular drugs that we have developed over the years from CRISPR-based genome editing, uh, mRNA therapies, uh, small interfering RNAs, intracellular antibodies. They're all relatively easy to generate, I guess, um, in the test tube in in vitro. But how do we get them to the cells uh, inside a patient's body uh, that that we need to target? And um, my first question is, so we have our f- new fancy drug in our test tube. What barriers does that, uh, that drug have to uh, cross before it reaches uh, the cell that we need to target? Uh, maybe, Katie, you want to start? Sure. And you mean once it goes in vivo? Yes. Sure. So it depends on the route of administration. Many different types of nucleic acids. Uh, they research is starting through intravenous delivery, but then of course we have the vaccines, which are intramuscular. Um, one way or another, the particles when they enter the body, you want to avoid premature interactions with the immune system, such that they're not cleared too rapidly, and that they don't provoke an unwanted immune response. Uh, They need to traffic to the site of the organ of interest, uh, diffusing through any kind of extracellular matrix that might be in the way. And then once they're in the vicinity of the target cell, at that point, they need to be uptaken. And in the case of lipid nanoparticles, for example, that uptake tends not to be the the rate-limiting step in the delivery process. Once they're inside of the cell, they're inside of an endosome, and here is a real challenge in the sense that, you know, when the cell interrogates what's in the endosome, it's not super interested in something like a lipid nanoparticle, and so it will begin to acidify and ultimately degrade the particle. Um, So it takes, I think, a lot of uh, uh, really smart uh, chemistry to be able to uh, help these nanoparticles 
fuse with the endosomal membrane and ultimately deliver the RNA into the cytoplasm of the cell where it can interface with either the, say, RNA interference machinery or the translational machinery. But what kind of particles, nanoparticles, are we talking about? Uh, so what kind of modalities uh, are in clinical use or at least in preclinical use at the moment? Maybe, Bob, you want to take that? Sure. Well, I think people are exploring all kinds of things. Um, you know, I think lipid nanoparticles, uh, polymer nanoparticles, there's groups uh, working on micelles. But I've seen people also look at, you know, inorganic substances as like silica for particles. I mean, it's pretty unlimited. I, carbohydrates, hydrogels. I mean, there's almost nothing I haven't seen somebody look at. But uh so, so all those, and I'm sure I forgot forgot a few as well. But, 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 but people are exploring all kinds of you know materials and and designs and things like that. So, I, I think in the clinic, it's really mostly lipid nanoparticles at the moment, and maybe a, a few uh, polymer nanoparticles. Is, is that true? Uh, I'm pretty up with the uh, vaccine literature right now, and all of the clinical trials are with some type of, of lipid nanoparticle or liposomal cationic lipid kind of formulation. Um, as to other types of clinical trials, Bob, on nucleic acids, do you know any that are um, non-lipid? Well, if you look at, I mean, I know, for example, when you look at, at different websites of, let me break it down to different, different things. You know, when you look at, and, and what I've heard, but I don't know exactly where they are in the clinics, but if you look at uh, what some of the companies are doing, they are they have talked about um, polymer particles and also micelles, um, you know. But I don't know how far along those different ones are. Certainly, lipid nanoparticles are the ones that are used the most right now. But I think both of the other two have certainly been studied and, and used. There's also, I know, like in Japan, there's a group that's been looking at like polymer Kotoka's group. I know for certain molecules, have looked at. Uh, polymer my, my cells and um but i but but i i know from talking to people that all those are used but there's certainly seems to me by far the most advanced as, as you're correctly pointing out in the clinic are the uh lipid, lipid nanoparticles so the first step you mentioned katie is uh once you inject those nanoparticles in the blood as i think many uh, therapies will be delivered the particles need to avoid being sequestered by uh, immune cells or cleared by the kidney. So how do we do this? Uh, what are the strategies that I use to avoid that clearance? Sure. So in terms of renal clearance, I mean, that's usually a matter of size. Uh, and so if you can have your particles made at a sufficiently large size, you're going to avoid renal filtration. Um, of course, though, at those sizes, then they're going to be uh, uptaken by the liver and other parts of the RES. Uh, so, you know, that's one strategy. Uh, most people use some kind of pegylation to avoid um, phagocytosis, for example, in the bloodstream. It's kind of a double-edged sword in the sense that, you know, the peg helps shield the molecule, makes the um, nanoparticle look a little bit more like water. And so, you can have the, the phagocytic cells avoid it to some extent. However, by putting PEG on the surface, it, it also shields, um, you know, uptake into the target cells. And so it, it's this careful balance of how much of that kind of molecule do you add uh, 
to help avoid the phagocytosis, but still enable delivery into the cell. I guess another problem that I've seen reported with PEG is immunogenicity. Does it mean now that we all had two or three doses of uh, pegylated uh, lipid nanoparticles that we will have developed anti-PEG antibodies, or is, is that a much rarer event? I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty rare. So, I mean, when you think about, I mean, there are a couple of different things that can happen. You know, you have your anaphylactic events, for example, and so those are are incredibly rare, uh, as are many types of allergies, mm -hmm. right? And it's a little bit difficult to predict. Uh, what one person or another might be allergic to, say latex mm -hmm. versus, you know, PEG. As for developing PEG-based antibodies, one thing we've found in my lab is that it's a little bit contingent upon the chemistry of the nanoparticle itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and that chemistry sometimes provokes an immune response by which the immune system wants to recognize that nanoparticle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so PEG is one of the most uh, accessible parts of the nanoparticle mm -hmm. on the surface. And, uh, but it's been clear that not all lipid chemistries, for example, provoke that response. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's fair to say that, you know, the vaccines and other things in clinical trials, there's been a lot of work to make sure that these formulations can repeat dose. Uh, in, in the typical person and avoid those sorts of anti-PEG antibodies from forming. Yeah, I, I'll just add to that in a couple of ways that, that may not necessarily be obvious to people. You know, first, you know, when you say, people say PEG, you know, PEG can be many different molecular weights and, you know, for, for starters. Secondly, and I'm, I don't know that people realize this just because of the media talking about PEG, but, you know, PEG is in a lot of things that everybody takes like i mean if that just just as an example miralax i mean that's oral but you know the amount of peg that you take for miralax if you have have trouble going to the bathroom i mean it's just you know it, 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 you you would take that, that would be a lifetime of, of peg if you had injected over and over and over and, you know and there are lots of other things that peg is in so i, I think it's just important to, to think about that that being said you know there are there are some groups that are doing some really nice work on things that may work possibly even better than PEG. Can you can't remember Xiaoyi Zhang was in the lab doing sabbatical when you mm -hmm. were there. He's, you know, he's at Cornell now. He's done some very nice work on zwitterionic polymers that mm -hmm. uh, look like they're working really well. So I, I think yep. there is there is definitely, um, you know, work going on uh, that that could be very useful on some of these things. Also, uh, polysarcosines are another example uh, with uh, peptide kind of backbones. I think there are a couple of, I think BioNTech has even um, had a paper come out on those and, you know, potential use as a substitute for PEG. One thing that I actually never really thought of uh, before preparing uh, for this podcast is that uh, the nanoparticles are exposed to a lot of physical stresses when you put them uh, in the bloodstream. I was wondering if that can be a problem or whether that can actually be used to uh, make drug delivery, for example, more specific. So I know, Bob, I think you worked on this, actually. Yeah, well, no, I think I think that's a possibility. By the way, I was just going to highlight another thing, you know, going back to the question you asked, Katie, on barriers. So, you know, and, and this is, I think, interesting, even from a cell standpoint, you know, so a lot of times people are doing delivery outside the body, right? You just have a single cell. Mm -hmm. And certainly if you're putting things in by, like, say, a CAR T cell, you know, people are often using things like electroporation. But one of the things that, that Armin Shari, who was a, 
graduate student with us at MIT, uh, and he would have overlapped with Acadia, I think, right? And, you mm -hmm. know, he, yes. he, he would, uh, you know, he actually discovered it's kind of interesting that you could squeeze a cell, and you could use that to uh, somehow open the cell membrane. Uh, you know, maybe through nanopores, and you could use that as a very effective way of putting genetic information in cells. And in fact, he's CEO of a company called Squeeze, which I'm on the scientific advisory board of. Uh, maybe I'm started, and and he uh, that they're actually in clinical trials on a number of things, uh, working with Roche and so forth. So I think that that there's no question that your Marcus, your point about uh, mechanical properties, you know, whether it's a you know, an artificial cell or a regular cell certainly can be uh, used to your to, to one's advantage. I think the next next step in the life of a therapeutic nanoparticle is they uh, needs to leave the bloodstream. How do they do that? What what are the common mechanisms? Well, I mean, it, again, you, usually, I mean, so in the case of of cancer, there's always this issue of leaky blood vessels. You know, I think it may depend on on what problem you're trying to solve. So, so if they're leaky blood vessels, you and you have the particle small enough, you know, they'll they'll just move through it. I mean, that's that's probably um, you know the easiest way. Though it's interesting that uh, people have shown that the leakiness may vary from person to person and from tumor to tumor. But but certainly, well before COVID, I mean, cancer or, or vac vaccines or things like that 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 people were using these particles for, I mean, drug delivery to cancer was, it was and still is a, a really big deal. So a lot of times it would be that they would have leaky blood vessels. Now, when you're doing, like Katie was saying, intramuscular injection, I mean, it, you're injecting into the space. So, I mean, the cells can take things up by, you know, different mechanisms. I, I know at Elnilam, the, the people there, we published a number of papers with them. You know, there's different mechanisms, cellular mechanisms that... Uh, by which nanoparticles are taken up. I mean, some by receptor-mediated endocytosis and some by, by other, other mechanisms. And another thing I can add is that, you know, when you look at organs like the liver, um, highly vascularized and, you know, part of the RES in the first place, uh, it's certainly not going to be, again, the rate-limiting step for delivery here. Uh, we have nanoparticles in our lab, as, as others do, that readily transfect 90% plus of the cells that are in the liver. And mm -hmm. so if that's happening, the extravasation is not going to be the main issue there. I should maybe just mention that RES stands for reticular endothelial system, oh. which is like a physiological system to clear nano-sized uh, and, and macrophages and things like that. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. good, good that you brought it up. Um, so I guess liver and potentially tumors are the easy cases. How about really hard cases like uh, the brain, where you have the blood-brain barrier? Uh, so how do we get across these kind of relatively strict uh, barriers? Well, I think it's really hard to do <laughs> effectively. <laughs> I mean, I think you know there are people taking receptor-mediated approaches, uh, but it's the you know it's the number one least permeable barrier in the body uh, for good reason. Bob, you've done some work uh, across the BBB, right? Blood, yeah, blood yeah, we, we, we have. I mean, and others have too, you know, but but I, by the way, agree with you. I mean, the, you know, the, the big issue is that you get really incredibly low uh, bioavailability. But some of the approaches that people are looking at, you know, 
Kate, Katie mentioned them, you know, going after receptors like transferrin receptor or whatever, you know, different, different groups are doing that. You know, there's a scientist at uh, UCLA, Bill Partridge, and he has done a lot of work on binding different molecules to molecules that already, you know, have some pathway to cross the blood brain barrier. Uh, so that's like a, a slightly different approach. Then there are groups that have, I mean, built on some of the things we did in our lab with the OC Coast on using ultrasound to enhance permeability. And they, they're using ultrasound to enhance permeability in, in the brain. Also, obviously, you could do what we and Henry Brem did, which is a, an implant like Leodel. Mm -hmm. and, and, and finally, I, I guess I'd say, you know, there's some groups, and I think this is interesting, looking at uh, exosomes, you know, like tiny particles that might cross the blood-brain barrier. There also have been reports of other particles like lipid nanoparticles or liposomes. But I, I think the bioavailability, I, I think Katie's initial comment, it's hard, is exactly right. You know, I think that the bioavailability of a lot of these are low. Still, if the bioavailability is um, not zero, that you might still be able to do some, some real good. Another thing that some people are trying uh, is intrathecal delivery, so delivery uh, directly into the spinal fluid as a way to uh, kind of brute force get across that barrier, and I think that's a completely acceptable form of therapy for conditions where, you know, they'd normally be fatal, say. Uh, there are some challenges with the non-viral vectors in this case actually making it all the way up into certain mm -hmm. types of of brain tissue. My understanding is that viral vectors have had uh, a bit more luck in that kind of delivery, but I think people are still trying to figure out the transport mechanisms uh, by which these non-viral particles might be able to access brain tissue that way. Yeah, I, actually, that, I'm glad you mentioned the intrathecal. You know, people are all, that, so that is an approach that that a variety of groups are using, and certainly is acceptable. Uh, you know, nasal delivery is another route that, that, that I know we've looked at and some places are, are looking at uh, as well. But all these things, it's a question of how much you're really getting across. Maybe if we talk about uh, uh, tumors for, uh, for a second uh, that Bob mentioned earlier, um, I think one of the special problems about tumors, uh, especially if we talk about uh, macromolecular drugs, is that we need to reach at best, all cancer cells. But I've seen estimates that that about only only about two percent of the tumors ever interact, uh, tumor cells ever interact with the nanoparticle. Is that true? And how far are we in, in targeting a large fraction of the cells? In in even in an ideal case of an easily accessible tumor. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. 
So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I mean, my, my impression you know, without having done a lot of solid tumor work myself, and Bob, you can, you can add to this. It's difficult to get to all of them. Um, you know, I, in terms of nanotechnology, I've been more encouraged by some strategies that target nanoparticle strategies to target immune cells um, and trying to provoke or train those immune cells to then go out and, you know, identify and kill these cancer cells and so I think you can take this two-pronged approach from a nanotechnology perspective of, you know, trying to get some of these therapies via the nanoparticles into the cancer tissue, um, but then, you know, having perhaps this more efficient mechanism of these immune cells, which are better able uh, to actually, you know, enter the, the tumor tissue. Bob, I don't know if you'd you'd add to that. Yeah, I was going to say a couple of things. I think that, that that's good what you said. And I actually agree with that approach. I mean, certainly that you said, you know, trying to train the immune system. And then, you know, like, I mean, one of the things that Moderna is doing, and I think uh, Genentech's also doing, I, mean, I think BioNTech too, is, is the idea of personalized cancer vaccines, you know, which is a one way of thinking about uh, training the immune system. But what I was also going to say, I think your, your point's in, interesting, Marcus, you know, like sometimes, I mean, Rakesh Jane's done some interesting work on looking sort of at the body of a, of a tumor mass and has actually developed some approaches where he can open up that mass so that you could have less extracellular matrix so that you could uh, basically get more drug in there and, and hit a greater number of cells. So there also could be approaches like that that, uh, that may be useful at some point. And I think he's exploring them. You know, he's an outstanding scientist. So maybe the last barrier that uh, the nanoparticle has to overcome, uh, depending on what you want to deliver, is that it needs to get inside the cell. So I think, Bob, you already mentioned classical endocytosis, clathrin-based endocytosis. The cell has other uh, ways of taking up extracellular material. Is it worth, or have people explored targeting other en endocytosis pathways like uh, Caveoli or... Um, macropinocytosis, or are there any conceivable advantages of doing this? Or do we actually know for most nanoparticles how they enter the cell? Well, I think cavioli pathways are restricted to somewhat smaller nanoparticles than, you know, the, say, lipid nanoparticles are that we typically look at. You know, I think you'd have to consider a change in chemistry, right? Because that's that's ultimately what dictates the interactions with the cell. I'm not, I'm not super sure what kind of receptor binding or cell interaction is required to, to accomplish macropinocytosis. Bob, do you know more about that? 
Well, all I was going to say is there's certainly been a number of papers written by different groups. I, I think to answer Marcus's questions, I think it is well worth exploring for different reasons, you know, getting greater efficiency and, 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 and so forth. Sure. So mm -hmm. I, I know some of the ones that we did with El Nylon, that was, uh, I mean, that was definitely looked at, you know, some of the different mechanisms. Um, I was also going to say that that cell may not be the last barrier that you have to overcome. A lot may depend on what you're delivering, right? If you're delivering DNA rather than say RNA, you want to go to the nucleus. So I think a lot depends on on what the delivery challenge it is that you're you're looking at. And you have to have to get out of the endosomes, which right. uh, used to be have talked about as one of the great challenges of uh, drug delivery. Has that larger has has that been solved, or is that still an active uh, area of research? How to increase endosomal escape from my perspective it's very active um you know there are frequently papers that come out that are trying to establish better methods of assessing endosomal escape in vivo or excuse me in vitro and i think that just speaks to impart the need for better endosomal escape i mean back in the you know, was it 2010 or somewhere in that region, the best estimates of endosomal escape, um, a generous side of things might have been 3% of nanoparticles that were escaping endosomes. And so, you know, when you think of the maximum of 100%, you know, that's two orders of, of magnitude uh, where you could be improving there. Of course, you know, 100% is not going to be possible, but a lot of room for improvement. Yeah, I second that. You know, and there has been a lot of work on, on on doing that. I mean, you know, I think some of the work, Katie, you did when you were with us and that you've done, you know, Carnegie Mellon, that, you know, we've been doing with Dan Anderson. Uh, you know, I th those are a lot aimed at that. Peter Cullis has done some very nice work in, in, in Vancouver, uh, you know, on, on, on this area. So I think figuring out the right kinds of lipids, if you're looking at lipid nanoparticles or or the right kind of other agents, uh, you know, I think are is very important area of research. Also add that the, you know, it, it's it's been difficult to understand how the internal structure, um, say of these lipid nanoparticles are interfacing with the endosomal membrane and kind of mediating this escape process. But over the years, I think people have been using, you know, various techniques, um, to have a better understanding of how this membrane fusion might be occurring and and this release is ultimately happening. And so, you know, to me, it's just a matter of time uh, before our understanding of, of what's actually going on here at the molecular level is then going to inform the creation of, of better nanoparticles that perhaps pack in more efficient ways or otherwise facilitate this process. I guess that brings me to the question, during all those steps that a nanoparticle uh, has to take, the physical environment is, is going to change, different pH, uh, different uh, ionic strengths. Uh, so the physical environment is, is changing. So can we design uh, nanoparticles that uh, that take advantage of those changes to change their physical properties uh, to adjust to uh, to where they are in the delivery process. Yeah, I mean, ab absolutely. I mean, you know, I remember. I think that's how you know when we started a lot of the stuff in our lab. Dan Anderson and Dave Lynn. You know, we use that on polymers and later lipids. And so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
I think one of the things that's been especially interesting over the you know past five to ten years is first it was kind of analyzed with more inorganic nanoparticles. Uh, Warren Chan at, at University of Toronto, for example, looking at these protein coronas that form um, on the surface of these nanoparticles, uh, which occurs because of the chemical interactions or electrostatic interactions uh, between the nanoparticle surface and then the proteins in whatever fluid uh, the nanoparticles wind up um, being delivered into. And so it's really interesting, you know, how that protein corona has been shown to then dictate where some of these particles are going, what types of cells they're interacting with. Uh, for example, ABOE has been identified, you know, for multiple lipid nanoparticles as helping with uptake into liver cells. And so then, you know, you, you can begin to consider if you're going to go into other tissue types, what kind of proteins are present uh, extracellularly in those environments. And so what do we have in the muscle as opposed to the bloodstream? What do we have uh, in the nasal cavity in terms of mucus as opposed to the bloodstream? And so those are really important um, aspects of nanoparticle chemistry that I think, again, you know, as we understand more about protein coronas, we're going to be better able to engineer these particles. I agree. That's well said. I guess that brings us to, I think, the holy grail of delivery is they were really good at delivering things to the liver by now. Um, as you said, you, uh, you, in your lab, you get, what do you say, 90% of the liver cells transduced. Um, I think we were much less good at getting nanoparticles to other organs. So maybe the first question is, in addition to the liver, uh, what other organs can we can we target with? at least decent efficiency? Well, I mean, what I can say is that right now in my lab, we have some work focused on um, delivery to the pancreas using lipid nanoparticles. Um, you know, it's a little bit difficult to do intravenously, but there are other administration techniques that are quite acceptable in, in the case of otherwise fatal diseases. You know, and then you can think about different types of uh, blood cancers, for example, different types of immune cells that are present in the bloodstream. One thing I've also been thinking about lately is um, like Duchenne muscular dystrophy and, and what it's going to take to have nanoparticles distribute uh, essentially all throughout the body. I mean, we have muscles everywhere. And so, you know, what do we need to do to facilitate delivery to those sorts of tissues? Um, we have you know, adeno-associated uh, viruses that are capable of homing to these particular tissues. So I wonder if there's inspiration we can take from them, you know, to learn somehow how to uh, alter our non-viral delivery systems to, to achieve that kind of delivery. So how, we, how do we do this for um, non-viral delivery systems? What, what kind of parameters do we play with? Do we use like active, active targeting um, uh, molecules like antibodies, or do we play with lipid composition, physical properties, or both? Well, I think it's not entirely um, well understood. I mean, certainly, again, changing the chemistry of the surface, which is everything, you know, every every type of um, ingredient inside of these nanoparticles, as well as their packing, like their distribution, which ones are uh, more on the surface versus others, that's going to 
play some kind of role in the process. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to say, and sometimes I think it's a controversial opinion, Bob, you can disagree with me if you're inclined. Everybody's so, you know, at, at least 10 years ago, everybody was so excited about these active targeting techniques and, you know, people putting all sorts of things on the surface of their nanoparticles. To me, this has always been a limited approach in the sense that you can take a nanoparticle and you can put a targeting ligand on it that's, say, perfect for a certain type of tumor tissue. But if that nanoparticle never floats by that mm. tissue in the first place, you know, how is that lock and key supposed to even work, you know, if you if you have something and you don't even go by the right house? And so it's not just a question of this, this uh, active targeting, selective uptake into certain cell types. We also have to understand how to get into that tissue and close to those cells in the first place. And it's not clear that active targeting is is what would actually facilitate that process. Mm -hmm. Do you want to add something, uh, Bob? Well, I, I think that's right. I think it, it's a piece of the puzzle, but I think, I, I, I also think that the question when people talk about targeting, you have to say, what does that mean? In other words, you know, I don't think you're ever going to get 100% targeting, but if you can skew the biodistribution significantly towards someplace. I mean, that's really, that that's good. That's what you want to do. I think that, uh, you know, there, there, there are different pieces to the puzzle. I think that Katie said it well, right? There's getting to the general tissue, then there's getting to the specific cell itself. By the way, towards that end, I think having, identifying receptors that are important for that cell type or that tissue, you know, are, are one thing that could be important. So I think that, that I, I think you really have to look at these things on a case by case basis. There's another piece to the puzzle would be detargeting. So uh, since a lot of things go to the liver and you don't necessarily want your chemotherapeutic drug in the liver, so you want to detarget certain uh, organs. Is that something that is that, that, that can be problematic or are there strategies uh, to have things not go to the liver? So, so basically, what I was going to say, I mean, the classic method, that is where a peg came in. I mean, that, that if you pegylate a nanoparticle, I mean, I remember we did this back in a paper of science many years ago, Rexandra Graf's paper, you, you see enormous change in liver uptake by pegylating these, uh, these particles. But as Katie and I were saying before, there's other molecules too that could be used for that. And as I recall that paper uh, and other ones that we had written on this, that again, it's it's not just the peg, it's also the peg molecular weight. And then Avi Dome, when he was with us, he actually came up with a way to triple pegylate, you know, by adding citric acid to the uh, the materials. You know, then you had three places that you could pegylate. So you'd get better and better coverage. And as you got better and better coverage, you got less and less uptake by macrophages, less and less uptake by the liver. So I think there's a number of uh, chemical strategies starting with what people did it with PEG and, and um, like I say, different groups are, are working on other kinds of things like uh, zwitterionic polymers or other materials that Katie mentioned. I've seen a couple of other approaches that I think are interesting. So there's at least one paper out there and we were trying it briefly in my lab. Um, the idea is basically to saturate the liver first oh. with some kind of pretreatment uh, so that, you know, it's basically full of lipid and you know, is, is not going to take up as much, uh, whatever paper is out there on that, it, it was, it, it was reasonably effective at diverting nanoparticle uptake from the liver. 
And then when you think about nucleic acid delivery, there's so many interesting things that you can do with the design of the nucleic acid. And so, you know, there are some people that are working on ways to, you know, prevent translation of their nucleic acid in certain cell types. And you could think about doing that, for example, for, for hepatocytes or other liver cell types. Um, so that it, you know, the the lipid or the nanoparticle might still accumulate in that tissue, but you might not then have the expression of of the protein that you'd prefer to be localized elsewhere. Yeah, no, that that's a good point. Actually, what, one of those papers, like we did this with a company called Nanobiotics. That's what they're looking at is is basically using it like a disguise. You shoot something in, binds to the liver, and then the, all the sites are occupied, so to speak. Uh, and I and that and that worked. I mean, you know, we, we we published on that kind of stuff, and I think, you know, that that is a different strategy. And and, and I, so I I think that that's a really good point you made. So one thing that I kind of notice in my my day job, uh, reading lots of papers, is that there is an enormous number of papers out there that that develop different kinds of nanoparticles to deliver stuff. And one thing that I always struggle with, and I see reviewers struggling with as well, is to assess how different formulations compare. In many of those papers, it's the same kinds of experiments. You load your favorite uh, chemotherapeutic uh, in the nanoparticle compared to the free drug, and then you get some survival tumor growth curves. So how do we think about uh, comparing standardizing assessment of those uh, nanoparticles that we get some sense of what to prioritize for uh, for clinical development or just even to make progress. We need to somehow assess what works better or worse. And I find that very difficult to, to assess reading papers. I mean, without, without some kind of universal standard or centralized testing facility, I think it's difficult to envision, you know, how a head-to-head comparison would be. I, I think we've all had the experience of trying to replicate things out of other labs. And, you know, I usually think the best of people or give benefit of the doubt. It's not necessarily that they're reporting something that's not true. It's just that in my lab, with my air intake, I mean, it just seems like the strangest things can make a difference in experimental outcomes, uh, you almost need to have some kind of facility with the same people uh, using the same models to really compare something head to head. I think, and I'm not up to date on this, I thought the NCI had some type of approach for doing developing standards, but I don't know how widely adopted it's been used, but I, I remember thinking that what they were doing was useful. Um, but what you, but both you and Katie are saying, Marcus, are, is certainly correct. I mean, it's you know everybody does things differently. Yeah, I think that brings me already to my last question, and that is, what will the future bring? Um, so we've talked about lipid nanoparticles a lot. We've talked a bit about polymers, uh, inorganic nanoparticles. What else is out there? What other ideas do people have? To me, it's less about. I mean, new new materials are always good. But as Bob kind of spoke about before, there's so much that is already out there. um, And it's not clear to me that what's holding us back is, you know, new, brand new materials. 
the the attitude that I've taken in my lab is that there's so much more understanding that we need to have of these delivery processes of materials that we've already made. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, we can do this fancy stuff and and cure a disease. Um, you know, journals such as yours, uh, other high profile journals uh, are very interested in treatment of disease. Uh, I think really what we need are better mechanistic understandings if we're going to think about what these next level, next generation materials are going to look like. So it's it's certainly a multifaceted problem. And so you have to tackle it from multiple angles. But I think that's one piece that's just going to be imperative. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I'd add, I'd add to, to, to a couple of things. You know, one is it's it's also it's not just the materials, it's also the design of the particle. And I completely agree with Katie on the understanding. I think understanding the biology is really key. And to that end, you know, I'd add to what she would say is that it'd be great if we had, you know, really good animal models, which in a lot of cases we don't, especially in areas like cancer. So I think, um, and if we had better imaging, I I could see a number of different tools that could also be helpful um, on these kinds of studies you know, better imaging approaches, all kinds of things, I think could could accelerate the field, but which is probably typical. I mean, there's so many things that, that you, you know, from the chemistry to the biology, to the imaging, you know, to the animal models, all those things end up being important. And one other thing I'll add, you know, in regards to understanding, I often think about it this way. You put something into the body and your body immediately knows what it's going to do with it. And it does that based on what it sees. And if we can figure out, you know, how the body is actually seeing these nanoparticles, if we can actually predict what the body is going to do in response to the introduction of these, uh, what are essentially foreign materials, uh, then we have the opportunity to uh, take advantage of that, right? Yeah, I think that brings us to the end. Thank you very much for uh, for taking the time and uh, answering my questions. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you, Marcus. Thanks for the opportunity to speak. I agree. I second that, and it's great to see you both. All right, that is the end of episode 12 of Forum. Our thanks to Katie and Bob for helping us put this together. Much appreciated. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, search for Forum and Nature Biotechnology wherever you find your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our sister podcast, First Rounders, and our 10-part podcast series, Hope Lies in Dreams, about antisense, Stan Crook, and the disease spinal muscular atrophy. That is also wherever you find your podcasts. If you'd like to comment on this podcast, on the journal Nature Biotechnology, or anything that we do, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. That is all the housekeeping. I will uh, talk to you in the next forum. Until then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.